So I'm writing a novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel. From first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also answer listener questions and, sometimes, interview people who write fiction. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. And this show, I actually am finally interviewing somebody. Somebody's actually two guests for the price of uh, one free download. <laughs> I'm interviewing Remco Van Stratton and Angeline B. Adams, a pair of authors who work together in Northern Ireland, where they live, and their novel, The Red Man and Others, is the book of the hour here. It is a collection of sword and sorcery short stories that add up to a greater tale when read all in order. And I strongly recommend it. I read it a little earlier in the year, back in the early spring, and I loved it. Plus, for me, it was a real just gust of air in my wings as I was having some doubts about, you know, have, why have I tied myself to sword and sorcery? Isn't it kind of an old genre? Will people like it? I don't know. Is it possible to write new sword and sorcery that takes it further without being an empty copy of the old stuff? Well, reading The Red Man and others made it clear you can do that, and that my fears were unfounded. So yeah, nothing else. I'm really grateful for how this book was essentially a big dose of uh, unintentional encouragement for me with my own project. But enough about me. Let's get to the interview. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, there. <laughs> uh, so I'm here with Angeline and Remco. Uh, could you each take turns? We'll start with Angeline uh, telling our listeners who you are. What's your whole deal? I'm Angeline Adams. I write sword and sorcery and folk horror. I also blog at Turnip Lanterns, and I'm the co-author of The Red Man and Others. And I'm Remco, and I do pretty much the same as Angeline because we're writing together. Right. And uh, what is The Red Man and Others beyond a, a great sword and sorcery book I've really enjoyed? Well, these are stories of a found family of con artists. Kayla is a small but tough sellsword and the reluctant mentor to Sebastian. He is a teenage con artist with a big heart and a quick pickpocketing hand. And then there's Imka. She is a disabled scribe and forger who has escaped a war-torn childhood, found love with Kayla, and they have been getting into trouble together ever since. Yeah, and it's uh, we did want to write Sword and Sorcery. Um, as it turns out, uh, the stories, well, we still class them as sword and sorcery, but there is not a lot of sword play going on, and it's very light on sorcery as well. But, you know. We're pushing the boundaries of the genre. Yes. Well, I really liked it, even even though, yes, maybe it didn't have, uh, you know, hordes of people being slain every other chapter and the dark, terrible Cthulhu type stuff crawling out of the woodwork. Uh, you know, it still felt very like sword and sorcery to me. It had um, one aspect that I really love about the genre is how it often feels much more grounded and it's kind of bottom up uh, perspective. And absolutely, that was there, for example. Uh, so, yeah, first thing I'd love to ask is. Why sword and sorcery? Why this genre that either people think died in the 80s or that, uh, you know, they associate with kind of like bad action movies, or I think in most cases, they just figure as a synonym for fantasy in general. Now, I say this as someone who loves it and is writing his own sword and sorcery book, so believe me, uh, but I'm curious what drew you to it over, say, high fantasy or grim dark or any of the other things? I think there's really two strands to that. First of all, we each in our different ways grew up with it. Uh, Remco was reading Robert E. Hart from an early age. 
I grew up with Thundercats as basically my first fandom. So you had Sword and Planet with various other influences dragged in. And I think that that aesthetic and the, those ideas and that atmosphere have been dragging me back ever since. But I think that because of the kinds of stories that we're telling and the kinds of characters that we are telling them about, I think that Sword and Sorcery appeals to us because it's about surviving in a dangerous world, living by your wits and your sword. And in a metaphorical way, I think a lot of us feel like that right now. We're living in an increasingly difficult, complex world. We're under threat in lots of different ways. And fantasy is a great way to deal with all sorts of things, wherever you are a writer kind of sort of subtly working your own trauma in there or a reader who wants escapism, but also wants to come away from a story feeling like, yeah, life is survivable. Yeah, and we in particularly wanted to focus on uh, characters who are, well, like us in a way, um, and, you know, have their uh, traumas, have their uh, disabilities, have their obstacles, but they are, they are still able to thrive in that mm -hmm. uh, uh, milieu, mm -hmm. in that environment, and able to survive and able to, uh, yeah, Unable to do it, I think, with a little bit of style and flourish and humour as well. There's a lot of humour in there too, despite the slightly grim parts. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I remember really enjoying uh, the humour in it. And actually, you're, what you just said reminded me of something uh, I really liked, Angeline, that you said in the making of section at the back of the book, which, by the way, thank you for including that. I love that stuff. Um, you said something in there about Ayumka and non-violent resistance. Uh, being a kind of you know very important part of the character and part of how like that's that's resistance too it doesn't have to be punching guys necessarily i think it is um, i mean especially there's uh we're in a strange period in history and there's sometimes a lot of rhetoric about the idea that to be resisting tyranny or resisting oppression you have to be out there on the battle you know out there on the barricades physically physically adding hand to hand but Imka survives in a situation where she believes that her life is never going to change she's growing up on a rural farm in a war-torn landscape with a very paranoid secret of father and because of all those things and because of her disability she doesn't see a way out but there is something in her that survives anyway yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, when we meet her again in the return of the uncomplaining child, she tells about uh, how she got there and how she established herself in that uh, environment she finds herself in. And that is an example of uh, resistance as well, because what she does is, um, you know, she basically um refuses to play the rules of that society and she said like you know this doesn't make any sense i am going to follow my own rules or i am going to take these rules and see how i can break out of them or use them to my own advantage so there is this whole complicated system of um apprenticeship and at the end of apprenticeship as a scribe uh, you would get your diploma and only then you can establish yourself. So, and she doesn't see a way out of it because she thinks like, you know, the only people who can get this certificate are the people who actually have the money to pay for it or the influence. So what does she do? She just 
writes this certificate herself. And that's enough for her to, you know, get by. And it's also kind of the gateway drug to breaking the law in other ways as well. <laughs> that was one of my absolute favorite moments in the book as someone who has learned a lot of uh, theoretically marketable skills by producing things to put out online, but doesn't actually have certification for them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I, I got a big kick out of that. And I did like that as a gateway to uh, crimes and other things. That absolutely that came directly from my life as well, because I've had relatively little formal education because my health just completely derailed, you know, going to school. I didn't go to university, but I kind of had to create a, a journalism career out of nothing. And like Imka, I ran into the sort of the unfairnesses that are inherent to the system and so that was i, I think i think that i was writing that on a slightly bitter day but i made it funny mm -hmm. yeah and having done our uh, journalism we worked uh in the art sector here or we wrote about the art sector here uh doing theater reviews um and uh reviews for movies um bands, galleries, all yeah, sorts of things anything that was uh, thrown at us and at a certain point, we got, uh, you know, comments uh, to our articles like, well, you know, these people, they think that they have done uh, theater school and they can just do reviews. And we went like, thank you very much. <laughs> because we haven't. Well, actually, that uh, brings me to another question. Uh, I'm curious, uh, first Angeline, then Remco, could you tell me, as children, were you encouraged to write? Who did this to you? <laughs> <laughs> my mother, I grew up in a house filled with books. My mother has always written herself. And so as well as her, I have teachers who encouraged me very early on. And I think that I don't think that anyone ever considered that I wouldn't end up writing. And of course, in some ways, it's a product of unfortunate circumstances as well, because I've been very thrown on my own resources by the fact that I didn't go through a normal experience of university and jobs. So it became a form of expression, but it's also a thing that I can very practically do when other options aren't open. Hmm. I, well, I did get encouragement uh, from my family. Uh, we are a family of readers. Uh, other people would always remark that there were always books uh, around the house and on the on the table. Um, so the, how it started for me is when I was about five or six, I saw the original King Kong film on the television and that stuck with me, even though I spent half of the time, you know, behind the sofa, not watching it. And I don't know why, but uh, when I was eight, I decided to uh, make my own book of it. So. Uh, we had this really big ancient typewriter, you know, one of those cast iron machines. And uh, I started pounding out uh, a nov my own novelization of it. And the thing with that is, you know, it was very heavy to um, operate the typewriter. So I had to uh, have a pencil in my fist and, you know, stab at the keys. And yeah, so that's how my writing career uh, started. Then um, when going to high school, I joined the school newspaper. And when I studied further, I, you know, kept doing that. And yeah. We do still have the King Kong story, by the way. It's it's the last oh. years. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Uh, do you, uh, Angeline, do you remember your first crack at writing a novel? Was it, was it uh, translating a movie you'd watched uh, like Remco or something else? 
I had a lot of false starts at novels whenever I was a child, like my, my primary school years are full of like novels where I designed the cover I wrote something very basic and that's as far as it went but in my mid-20s I started working on something that was not that well very bare sort of layer of fantasy over it but was basically very autobiographical very much about where I grew up and family stuff kind of twisted to hopefully make it unrecognizable and it's still sort of in a in a semi-written state it, it's out there somewhere it'll it, it will surface one day <laughs> yeah i mean i i was i i think i did short stories and comic books i always tried to get an artist friend to draw my dumb superhero ideas or whatever uh it wasn't until i was 19 and i wrote the first 20 pages of what was a post-apocalyptic story that was very obviously about me and a girl i had a crush on in the post-apocalyptic ruins of the small town where i was raised <laughs> yeah maybe i'll make that like a really big patreon goal for down the road if you have me reading that out to me we'll see what happens um so i think we've, we've touched on it a little bit but i'm curious you know, uh, Remco, what do you get out of writing? And then Angeline. Oh, what I get out of it is, um, well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I have to think about it a little bit. Um, I think even though we write fantasy and horror, we deal with uh, the things that bother us in real life. Um, you know, there are things like religion, for example, um, you know, both in my own background, which was in a village where we had, uh, it was a small village. It had two pubs, but four different churches and they were all Protestant churches. And, um, you know, during the week, you know, people got on well enough, but on Sunday, nobody would speak with each other you know you would have one group of people go one side of the street uh, to one church the other group would go the other side of the streets to the other uh, church um so yeah there was a lot of um you know uh, difficulty around churches while i grew up um also my older brother when he went to kindergarten uh, the teacher asked him like well and have you been baptized and he went like, no. And she said like, oh, then you will forever burn in hell. So, you know, it, it's kind of little things like that, that um, kind of, you know, spoiled church for me. Um, I've become a little bit more relaxed about it. Uh, I can see the benefit of church and religion and faith for people uh, in particular, um, but you know, it's not for me. Um, also in Northern Ireland, um, you know, we have, well, we, we've had a decades long. Uh, we, we've had, basically, we now have a generation that has grown up sort of in the aftermath of a decades-long ethno-nationalist conflict, but the effects of that conflict are still felt because, surprisingly, you can't just write a peace agreement and have everyone sign it, and then that makes it okay. And so I think that, like Rem, I'm exercising a lot of stuff because while I wasn't personally harmed in the Troubles, everybody who has grown up in Northern Ireland, we've all been shaped by living through times whenever people on a very fundamental level couldn't live together. And I think that 
what's coming out for me and the red man and others is how do people cope with this how do they build on top of the rubble with all the positives and negatives that that kind of connotes i you know i didn't think there are things in my life where again i it's not that the troubles has been this massive personal struggle for me as it has for so many people who have really suffered but I found out that I had more things to say about all of that and especially about some more personal experiences with religion than I realized. And I think that, I think we both really, it's been a bit of an exorcism in some ways. And so, you know, you're writing about the bad things that people go through, but also about how they survive and very particularly about how they survive together. I mean, in, in some ways, the book is kind of a love letter to the power of finding your people mm -hmm. and how you change whenever you meet them. And it's kind of like we've been really touched by how people have responded to that aspect of it, particularly. And I think that one of our sort of unstated goals with it was to... I suppose it's like a little fist bump to the people who have kind of held us up whenever we have had difficult times and to those kinds of friendships as much as anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so it's uh, part of it is, uh, you know, uh, dealing with our own, uh, well, traumas is maybe a big word, but, you know, there you go. Yeah. But a huge chunk is indeed that we also want to write the stories that we want to read. Yeah. We want to uh, write about the people we want to read about as well and you know that is a huge you know motivation as well yeah and i mean hearing hearing that it has worked like that for people has given back to us an enormous amount oh well, that's excellent that must be really gratifying to have people who connect with the whole found family right that's the term de jour i think uh, in writing circles uh, found family, good marketing term. Um, sorry, I'm sounding cynical, but actually that kind of brings me to my next question, which is, um, I'm curious, you know, I, I found myself, um, part of the reason uh, I framed this podcast as me having like, uh, just sharing with you my journey of writing the book I'm writing, as opposed to me telling you how to write the book that you're writing, uh, is because I have found myself starting to kind of overdose on writing advice. There's so much online and so much obviously conflicting advice i mean i find there's so many of these like sort of um binary axes of just you know this week we're going to one end of the spectrum and next week no 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 it's the other end and then back and forth and back and forth on any number of specific items uh you know or maybe like you know just this past week we've had all this hoo-hurrah about uh, the cat person thing has come up back mm -hmm. up into the news uh because it turns out the author of that short story uh for listener if you're not familiar uh four years ago now uh, a short story called cat person went viral all about a date that really didn't go very well long story Story short, uh, short story short, and um, that has come up back into the news in the last week because uh, someone realized that all kinds of details for that story were ripped out uh, of their life and used in it, and it brought up a lot of jim jam uh, online, uh, the technical term. And there's one part here that I'm going to read for you guys, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it. Um, which actually moves on from advice to we'll come back to that, I guess, to a question I have about author presence in public. Uh, Emily Gould says here on Twitter. The pressure on authors to be cuddly, relatable friends to all has been bad for everyone. I think we'd all be a lot better off if we lived in closer contact with the idea that writing, if you're serious about it, is profoundly antisocial and in some ways irreconcilably, <laughs> uh, irreconcilably amoral. <laughs> now, I don't know about amoral, um, but yeah, how do, you, how do you guys feel about like, sort of the author's public presence and, 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 and all that kind of thing? You know, first of all, a lot of the writing advice that you get um, is doesn't stick with us because we write together. 
so it's not a solitary uh, thing at all. Um, about dealing with an audience. Um, so I think that uh, the moment you put a story out there, you don't, you do not longer own it. Uh, then it becomes um, part of the audience as well. So whatever um, someone else reads into it, what it means for someone, uh, how they like it or not, you know, you don't have any control over it. So it's not like here is my story and this is what I mean with it. Yeah, you can do that as an author, but what someone else gets out of it, that's outside of your control. So you don't, in a way, you no longer own it. Mm. I'm not sure whether that's answering your question. No, that's okay. I got a bit excited and kind of asked two questions at the same time. Sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so I guess, yeah, what I was, uh, was trying to um, muddle my way towards there was uh, basically, how do you feel about writing advice in general online? Do you find, like you said, as you say, a lot of it bounces off you because you guys work together and I imagine maybe that becomes kind of self-reinforcing? Do you, Maybe it's the opposite. You kind of worry about getting in a bubble, uh, do you think? Or Yeah, I think for me, I mean, going back to sort of when I was first encountering writing advice, I think that I found a lot of it kind of alienating because you would see a lot of stuff which was along the lines of, you need to be getting up at 5 a.m., you know, before the business of the day starts, you need to get in a couple of hours a day. The big one that really bounced off, I bounced off very hard was you need to write every day because what would happen is that I would, you know, I would have the laptop by the bed. So as soon as I woke up, I would be trying to get my R in. I would keep a record of my word count every day and I would do well for a while, but then life would get overwhelming. I'm living with several chronic illnesses. At the time, my autism was also undiagnosed and it has a huge impact on things like focus and executive function. So I was constantly pushing against all of these different challenges and I was getting very frustrated with myself and of course every time that you fail to do what all the writing advice is telling you you think well maybe I'm, maybe I'm not a writer there was also a big thing when I was younger there was this idea Erlen that if you aren't totally enthusiastic about it all the time if you don't have an enormous internal drive to write then you're not a writer and that haunted me for years until I realized that I was dealing with some problems that not everyone is dealing with. I also, a lot of that was getting in my way, in the way of my enthusiasm and it was creating a lot of fear, which was obscuring everything. So while firstly, I don't think it's realistic to expect that you are going to be loving it at every minute or that you will be driven at every minute. There's no other job where we expect that of people. And so I'm glad to see that that rhetoric is kind of dying now, mm -hmm. perhaps because of the times we're living in when it is, you know, it is tough out there for writers. So now, I mean, as Ram says, I'm not, you know, I'm obviously not writing in isolation, but I, I try to take and leave writing advice based on what works for me. And I do particularly try to reflect back into the world because I know a lot of other autistic and disabled writers are out there, perhaps also not relating very much to advice that seems to be written for people mm. who have a lot of support and a consistent energy level. You know, I'm, I'm trying to put a little more advice that's perhaps more realistic for the rest of us <laughs> there. Yeah, but you still, uh, like a couple of weeks ago, it uh, was uh, one of the, those big writers came out with like, you know, when you're doing a novel, you have to live the novel. You have to breathe the novel. You cannot think about anything else. Uh, all the rest of your life have to be, has to be put aside. And 
you know, and I'm thinking like, you know, that's good and well for you, you know, if, you, if that's your career and you don't have any, any other commitments. But most of us, you know, we have a day job, we have to uh, pay the rent, we have family ob obligations, and, you know, we do have to take care of our health as well. So, you know, that's just not going to work out for most of us. So I think, mo you know, most writers, um, you know, are not uh, earning a lot of money out of it. So they have to do it in the small hours, you know, whenever it's convenient, um, you know, and when they've had a day at work, you know, they might not have any brain left uh, to write mm -hmm. um, because, you know, it is, it, it's, well, at least for me, it's not like, you know, I move beyond the keyboard and I just started start pounding out words. Mm -hmm. That's for me, it's not how it works. I have to. Um, it's more like mining sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. You have to go down into the deep, dark caves and dredge <laughs> it up. Yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, when your mental energy is low, you know, it's it's you have to go really deep to get to that point where you're actually, you know, focused enough to to write. And, you know, often that only happens in the weekends. So, yeah, okay. yeah, no, you've got you've got to find the resources when you can to do it. And I think I have a theory I'm curious to get your opinion on. I really do think that a lot of the writing advice is particularly, I would just say toxic. I mean, the stuff that says, you know, you've got to burn yourself down mm. and forget about your loved ones, forget about the cat, get rid of the cat, uh, focus more on the writing or whatever. Uh, all that kind of like rah, 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 intense stuff. I think it's um, people who are trying to puff themselves up. I just think it's premium projection without thinking about the effect it might have on other people, particularly younger people who are trying to start their you know, writing careers. And they maybe don't know that, oh, this person's probably just puffing themselves up, saying you got to write every day for two hours between five and seven or you're not real. Uh, you know, why all this focus on, um, as I say, the puffing themselves up, I think, and also... Um, there's, there's very few professions, I think, where people are so fixated on if you are that thing or not. You know, are you a real writer? You know, as you said, yeah, I think you touched on there, actually. You know, you don't have people going around, are you a real plumber? Real plumbers do this thing. They plumb between five and seven every day. Uh, you know, it just doesn't happen. So do you think it's just this kind of, um, a lot of writing advice that gets put out there, particularly the stuff that's a bit obnoxious, is maybe just a product of uh, the individual's insecurity. And one of the best lessons I yeah. think maybe people writing could learn is to spot that. <laughs> I think you're right. And also part of it, you can't really separate it either from the fact that most writers are also the main person doing PR for their own work. And social media especially, there's a, like you touched on it earlier, Oliver, there's a, there's a huge need to have a certain kind of appearance on social media, to be present in wider conversations about writing and also as a reader about fandom. There's such a lot of mm. expectations around image that you... I think there's a danger sometimes that your energy can go into that more so than into the actual work. And it's and the thing is, we're all in the same boat. We've all got this problem of our attention is being demanded from so many different angles. And it's not for nothing that we have, you know, programs specifically designed to turn the internet off so that you can get some work done. And I'm, I mean, I freely admit that I rely on that myself. So I think that it can be hard sometimes when you see someone who is very present on social media who is making these pronouncements which, as you say, imply that their own writing life involves a monastic level of discipline. It can be hard to remember, you know what, that person has probably also had times when they've spent the morning, you know, plunging the toilet, cleaning up cat vomit, trying to, you know, 
stop their children from cutting each other's hair or whatever. But that's not the stuff that necessarily makes it into the lofty writing advice. And so you can end up with a very polarized view. Yeah. So I, I do think that, you know, there are, it does take a, um, a certain dedication. Um, you know, you can't just uh, put, I'm a writer on your uh, Twitter profile mm -hmm. and then waiting for the words to come. You know, that's, that's the other, uh, the other that's the other extreme so mm -hmm. that's that's not it either uh but i do think that as you know there is a certain pressure to maybe be seen as more professional than you maybe are um because you know part of the time you know we, we don't know what we're doing and you know you <laughs> you you do something, you try it out, and you go like, ah, that didn't work. And you backtrack, um, you know, piece things together until it works. Um, so, yeah, there might be a bit of a gatekeeping uh, mm -hmm. involved. What where you will also see that is the, um, and, and that, that's been recently in particular, or, you know, that's never stopped, is uh, writers putting down other ways of writing, uh, other genres, but, you know, in particular, like, um, uh, fanfic, you know, like, oh, fanfic, you know, that's not real writing. It doesn't count. You know, it's no, no, you can't do that. That's bah, you can't do that. So, and I've seen the same in the past in the art world where, or where, you know, people will say like, you know, I like drawing and, uh, you know, I'm painting. And people go like, oh, you know, but you, know, you can't call yourself an artist because you haven't done art academy and, you know, this and that. And I'm going like, no, just, you know, if you like drawing, if you like painting, just do it, do it, you know, be creative. At a certain point, doing the thing is what makes you the writer, makes you the artist. And we, we let a lot of other ideas get in the way of that. Yeah, I agree. I think, again, it's this thing of because it's a question of are you a writer, we get this, it creates this gap of insecurity to come in and create all these behaviors, plus the online thing where we, as you say, we have to sort of raise our uh, humanity to a certain degree, you know, and just be like, I'm a good productivity bot uh, masquerading as a human. Um, and, and actually, that brings me to sort of a sub-question of this, because, of course, we don't just write, we read, and we also look at other authors and their websites and Twitter feeds and all that stuff are like. I'm curious, what do you enjoy in what authors choose to share of themselves online? That's a great question. I like it whenever authors talk about their influences, especially when the influences are a little bit oblique or not necessarily what you would expect from reading the thing, because I find that myself. I mean, you know, you might think that whenever someone's writing sword, or, sword and Sorcery, then all the influences would be Sword and Sorcery. But in my experience, things often come from very different angles. And I, the other thing is, I really appreciate it whenever authors do acknowledge the times when things went wrong, the times when they didn't and still don't know all the answers. And, you know, because we're always looking at other authors who are a bit ahead of us or who seem a lot ahead of us. And we're thinking that person is on a pedestal to which I shall never ascend. And then you realize that they also have concerns about their promotion. They're worried about, you know, they're worried about how sales are going. I particularly do wish that we could admit more I think that we're afraid of looking as if we're failing. So it can be hard to acknowledge sometimes the reality of, well, no, sales aren't where I would want them to be. Or I'm finding it hard to break through in terms of, you know, finding more Twitter followers. Or I'm finding 
it hard to get some traction in terms of reviewers. I think the main way that does express itself is that you'll see people, I mean, I think the number one offer, exhortation and lament is please guys review this book because that is, it, it, it is cliche to say, but it is one of the things that makes the biggest difference. And I think that that is probably the point at which, you know, offer insecurity bubbles up the most. Because, but at the same time, we have this huge pressure on us to kind of express it in a dignified way and not have it come out as, please, we're dying out here. You know, tell someone that you liked our book. Mm -hmm. So anytime, I think at any time that offers are willing to say, you know what, it's challenging, I'm struggling, I would like things to be better. You know, I, I love it whenever people are honest about that. Yeah, so yeah, so this is a general plea. Please review our book, put your star rating on Goodreads, put it on Amazon, uh, put a review on it if you yeah. really liked it. If you didn't like it, please don't, of course. <laughs> Yeah, no one star. I didn't get it. Uh, yeah, no. And actually, it's, uh, you might be thinking, well, they have a bias. They wrote the book. I would also tell you to please go, uh, if you read the book and like it, uh, to Amazon and Goodreads and all those places and say, this was great um, because we're all chained to the algorithm right now. We can't do much about it. And yet it can be uh, sometimes tiresome, even though you completely understand why they're saying it, to be following someone who makes something you like, whether it's authors of books or like, you know, we've all watched a YouTube video and at the end it's like, please hit that, smash, smash that like and subscribe button and you're like yeah can i just enjoy the thing why do i have to have homework <laughs> why can't i just enjoy the but you but it's, but it's, it's this conflicting impulse on the one hand you just want to enjoy the thing and not be given homework by the creator on the other hand you want the creator to keep making the thing and to be able to make the thing <laughs> so at the same time like we're we're also readers and so we also have that you know please believe that we have our you know we have our guilt stack of books which we have not read yet have not reviewed yet but have been meaning to so we also understand it completely from from a fan perspective because i mean writers are also all readers we're also all fans and so you know none, none of us is that perfect person who is banging out a new review every day <laughs> Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I've got a, a guilt stack of my own. I actually had a calendar reminder, you know, review the last 10 books you got. And I was like, I got through about three and then I had to do something. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that almost comes back to, funny enough, I think it's like a cousin of how sometimes um, you see uh, things like save local small businesses. And I'm like, I can't, I don't have enough money to buy from all of them constantly, <laughs> but I do want them to be here. <laughs> I do want this, I do want the local bookshop. I do want the, the review cinema. I do want these authors to keep writing these books. And like, oh, I only have so many resources. It's as if there's systemic issues with our society that need to be fixed, maybe to make things a little easier for everyone. But don't think too hard about that. Anyway, <laughs> I, so on the flip side, I'm curious, um, no need to name names or anything, but what puts you off? What have you, you know, when you, aside from maybe the obnoxious writing advice, uh, where it's just like, burn yourself to the ground, uh, that we were talking about a minute ago, when you're looking at an author's website or their newsletter or their Twitter feed, you know, what, 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 where's the line for you between like, um, being very honest about what the, what's up with them, which actually I couldn't agree more. I'm trying to do that with the podcast. We'll see, but that always with that fear of showing my arse uh, in it. Um, but then, you know, I, I I will say that like just I did right now, and then I'll go look at his website, and he's talking about how sick his mum is, and I'm like, I'm sorry for your mum, but I came here to read about your book. <laughs> so where where for you is the line in terms of like, yeah, maybe I don't need to hear this. Well, actually, um, you know, I might. For me, it's a, a bit different. Like, and it's especially for Twitter. Um, if there there is a sweet spot between promoting your uh, book uh, and you know uh, you know talking about yourself and you know like hey I saw this on television or like this was an absolute bad day or something like that, um, 
if someone's Twitter feed is in particular, you know, every day, every hour, the same advertisements of buy my book, please, please buy my book, um, especially when there is that desperation behind it, uh, you know, it does um, turn me off, you know, if someone's Twitter feed is nothing else but, you know, the promo for the book, it's, it's not good. I unfollow. <laughs> I think for me, it comes from another direction. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I think that this is a very big conversation on book Twitter in general, I am more inclined to unfollow if I feel that someone is talking more about the things that they dislike than the things they like, or when I feel as if they are veering a little bit too much into that direction of... Basically, there's always a huge tension between, on the one hand, a culture of accountability, and on the other hand, a culture of, well, witch hunts and accusations. And I've often noticed that we have a bit of a problem on Twitter where we can get very focused on, you know, is that person coming from an authentic place when they're writing about this identity? You see pressure on people to out themselves or to perform their identity in a way that is recognizable to readers. And of course, readers, there's so many different readers that how, you know, how can, I mean, how can my disabled identity as expressed in my writing be legible to every single disabled person? The answer is it can't. So, you know, and we all, we all are at risk of doing this. I mean, I've definitely had phases on Twitter where I am complaining about things that bother me in the book world more than I am, you know, uplifting the books that I've loved and the authors who have inspired me. And so when it gets to the point where I feel that someone is building a platform mainly by pulling others down, that's when I unfollow. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I actually have um, an index card taped to the top of my monitor, mostly for when I'm pitching shows to people. But in general, I, I try to think about it for because they're always kind of pitching yourself when you put yourself online. Uh, don't say what you aren't, say what you are. And I, I this is a little, I forget where I first read that. It's not my piece of advice, but I think it's a good one to just kind of be like, hey, you know, here's my neat book and here's some neat stuff rather than, well, my book's better than so-and-so. It has a more authentic uh, presentation of X, Y, Z. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so, yeah, I just think it's, it's just more pleasant. <laughs> Just a better way to kind of put yourself out there. So I, I, I have a slightly darker question. I'm kind of curious. How much of a role does uh, fear and anxiety play in your writing? Because I find my fear of being judged sometimes influences uh, my choices in a scene that I'm doing. I think that it's huge, but I mean, definitely, you know, the fear of being judged and of how will people see my approach to that particular thing I'm writing about, that is definitely a concern. And sometimes it becomes a really naughty puzzle for me to work my way through. But I think there's a much deeper fear of it is actually influencing my writing because I worked out a while ago that a lot of my writing is actually in some way about death. And considering like my, my life experiences and you know my, and my background, I think that's understandable. But it's always interesting to me how unconscious some of this is. I mean I didn't I didn't set out to you know, for my writing to always be about mining my deepest fears, but they come out in disguised form in my writing. And often I don't understand exactly what something meant until later on. Yeah. And the, yeah, the topic of death in, in some way, it's, it's, it's not only coming from her, but, uh, you know, I, I'm now thinking of some stories where I'm thinking like, yeah, but that one, it definitely came from my side, uh, because writing together, you, Sometimes one person has an idea, the other riffs on it, and then, you know, you talk about it. And at the end, you don't really know who contributed what part to it. Going back to your uh, question, I would say 
dealing with fear, yes, we definitely have these moments of like, you know, that everything is terrible. There is no, there's no point to it. And why are we doing this? And et cetera, et cetera. Well, that's also where, when it's good to be with the two of us, because, you know, usually the other is then a little bit uh, more level-headed and goes like, okay, let's talk through it and let's see what we can practically do or like, let's get back to let's go back to the ground i think we've had it very seldom that we both were in the same state of despair i think that's very true it's like i was reading an interview yesterday with someone and they were talking about how they had heard somebody talking about what was the secret to their long successful marriage and the answer turned out to be there was no day when we both hated each other at the same time and i think for us it's there was no day when we were both in despair at the same time you have to alter you know you're kind of one of you is carrying the sort of writerly insecurity imposter syndrome despair etc you know one of you is carrying the ball for a while and then you know the other is taking a ball and the other is kind of heaving them upwards and, and I think that's the way it goes. <laughs> I love that. Uh, and actually, yeah, it brings me back to uh, a question I meant to ask at the start. Oh, well, here we are. I have collaborated with people on screenplays, but never another writer. It'll be like a director. And, you know, so that's a very different relationship, usually uneven in one direction or another. Uh, my prose writing has been 100% just me. Uh, so I'm very curious to know how you guys do it as a team. How, what's your sort of method? And how did it go the first time you tried? It's hard to remember, but I, I think I know actually the first time we tried was probably we had the idea for a picture book, which kind of developed shortly before we started to be in a relationship with each other. But thing, it, it was it was one of those very long things where we both had feelings that neither of us knew how to voice. And so there was there was an atmosphere, let's put it that way. And I think that we kind of traded ideas back and forth. That picture book is still not being written, by the way. They're going to find their way into other things. Our method, though, is we work in alternating drafts. And so it's layered and the fact you, you know maybe he'll come up with a synopsis i'll do the first draft proper crucially these are always separate files because whenever you have two people working and you know you go through such a process with something you're writing sometimes one of you is going to be too editing happy is going to cut it down too much sometimes you're going to change your minds mutually about what direction something should go in and only towards the end do you realize you know what we actually need to sprinkle some ideas we had at the beginning of this thing for flavor and so you go back to one of your earlier drafts so our process is that we alternate and that we also we don't get in each other's way whenever somebody ha whenever it's someone's turn whenever someone is working on a draft of the thing obviously the other person can say hey what about it? i meant to say and then that can go into the side notes you know but it i think that in the early years we worked out that i mean certainly for me what really doesn't work is to show a draft part way through that's a cast down rule of mine because otherwise i lose my sense of what my own intent is and i lose confidence especially you know i really need to be alone with the thing to make it work yeah i i, I need approval to keep myself going so i'll you know show my paragraph that i've written like look isn't this a nice paragraph and answering girls like yeah that's very nice and then i write the next paragraph so you know within our method we we do work a little bit differently i think we have developed a certain house style where we are being able to work towards a common voice and within that as well i think we're you know the main thing we've learned is not to be too precious about our prose or our you know anything that we've written 
you know, sometimes you do have bits where you think like, you know, this is really important or if you then see it to drafts further that it's been removed and you can always go back and say, like, hey, you know, why did you remove that? Discuss it mm-hmm. and then either, you know, you reinstate it or you don't, I, I don't think we have any, had any I big think- fights over it. I think that we're more likely to have misunderstandings over intent than anything else. But a lot the thing is also a lot of discussion happens in between. I mean, a lot of the important stuff about character arcs actually just happens with us chatting to each other. You know, like we'll just get spontaneously get into a long late night discussion about Sebastian and you know what the sort of what what you know what what his early childhood has done to him, and then that will become a guiding sort of principle for different stories that we are working on but yeah i mean the process of doing natural drafts one thing i mean one phrase we use a lot you know if, if we're going back and forth about whether does that sentence work or not does that idea need to be introduced here or not we use the phrase but that's not a hill i need to die on a lot or, or, you know if there's something where well this is why i have it in or this is why i phrased it like that but in the end, if we are trying to cut things to make word count, it's not, you know, a, a number one priority. Mm-hmm. And one thing we've started doing, and not that long ago, is to, you know, go through the story together at the very end. Um, we read it out loud. Yep. That, that's key, you have to read it out loud. And then sometimes there you do end up debating about mm-hmm. a single comment, comma <laughs> or a, a sentence and you try out different versions and you know it goes really down into the nitty-gritty of it but it, it does really strengthen it and especially i think the thing with the reading out loud part is that you hear problems in sentence rhythm that you won't really catch in any other way yeah or, or you have written a beautiful sentence and then while you read it aloud you go like yes that's a beautiful sentence but what does it mean? Why is yeah. it there? Or you hit the double entendres. I mean, sometimes, I mean, we both have a sense of humor of a 12-year-old, so most of the time we catch those things, but every so often uh, some, something slips by us and then we realize, okay, it's, it's good we found that. Or now and then you want to leave it in for effect, but yeah, the, these things happen. <laughs> yeah, somebody's delivering a big package. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I have to get that out. Oh, that was wonderful. Okay, I'm, I'm curious. Also, sorry, before I move on, would it be condescending if I said, uh, I think it's bloody adorable you met uh, while uh, working on a story? Uh, and I'm glad uh, the relationship worked out, if not the book, yet. Yet. That book may still happen. <laughs> yeah, well, um, we, we do. Uh, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a hoarder. so He's a hoarder. Uh, I've got yeah, I, I've got bits and pieces of paper and uh, also computer files which date back uh, decades and decades ago. Actually, the Red Man itself it was based on an idea that I had like twenty years ago. You know, every now and then I will go through the stack of old papers and go like, oh yeah, we can do something with this. You know, that original picture book idea of mm-hmm. us. You know, it might still happen. Yeah, no, nothing ever really goes away. I mean, I think if I think if we had one bit of advice to honest that would be it i mean don't don't be too quick to throw out your ideas i mean this is the purpose of digital storage you know you don't have to be limited by the amount of space you have for old notebooks yeah be thrifty yeah i agree with that very much so i think kill your darlings well maybe instead of killing them just cut them and paste them out somewhere else and mm-hmm. hold on to them um and, and remco i feel you on the hoarding i just had a series of computer calamities that led me to have all of my uh, adult life's creative output in digital format on a single creaky hard drive that made horrible, horrible noises. 
Uh, listener, you can't see Angeline's eyes just went wide. Um, and <laughs> and uh, luckily I was able to get everything off that sh you know shaky little arc into new digital storage uh, fairly quickly, but it was a bit horrifying for about a week there. I was thinking, oh yeah, right, digital hard drives last about 10 years. This one I got 12 years ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, okay, we're getting near the end here. Uh, one quick question before we sort of wrap up. You guys have been doing a lot of promotion for your book, as you do. Uh, I'm curious, is there anything you wish people would ask you uh, in interviews? We're both looking very glassy-eyed. I just want to say yeah. audio medium, yeah. and I want you to get the full effect. Um, I don't know. Anything you wish you could, like, oh, I would like to talk about that in the interview, but they never they never ask me about the cat. I, I Pretty good at shoehorning our pet subjects into interviews yeah, at this point. Um, I honestly think I, I think you know it's uh, what I would say is actually I'm curious about uh, what your view of this is and or how how it works for you is look for us writing sword and sorcery it's in a way it's a means it's not a goal well you know mm. originally. You know, we did have this thought of, oh, like, you know, we really like Robert E. Howard's work, so we would love to write something like Robert E. Howard, just like his uh, Farringtown horror stories. We really wanted to write something like that and ended up with something completely different. But, you know, what, what we found is that it's important to, even when you're writing within a genre, it's a means, it shouldn't be the goal in itself. So that's why we tend to pick all these different influences from inside of ourselves, but also from other genres, other media, etc. So I'm actually wanting to ask you, like, you know, how does it work from for you, and what influences? other than outside of sword or sorcery do you bring to your work? Well, I definitely try to consider other mediums. I, like I say, I write screenplays, so I think a lot about television and film uh, guardedly because I want to write a novel, not a, a treatment for a screenplay, uh, which can happen by accident sometimes. As far as uh, the genre, sword and sorcery, I mean, I've been obsessively reading as much as I can get my hands on for the last two and a half years or so, and I really enjoy how Brian Murphy defines it, uh, the sort of seven qualities he names in his book Flame and Crimson, but he says in that book, you don't have to check mark all seven in in every story, otherwise it's not sword and sorcery, and it's not fun to be overly dogmatic about what gets through the gate and what doesn't. Uh, you know, he said that when he was talking about um, Jack Vance's Dying Earth series, which isn't exactly you know Conan stuff, is it? But uh, he he made a good argument for saying you consider at least some of it uh, as sword and sorcery. So you know, and then here I am writing this uh, untitled sword and sorcery novel, and the whole first third, I'm not sure it qualifies <laughs> sword and sorcery. It's all about the main character kind of becoming a sword and sorcery protagonist, which she then is for the, very much the back two thirds of the novel, and. And does that mean I did it wrong? I don't think so. I think um, it's the, the genre is my starting off point and what it is by the end, we'll see. Uh, I'll think about that when it comes to time to market it uh, and so on and so forth. But I'm, I'm still finishing the outlining, so I've got lots of time to faff about and not worry about that. Um, but yeah, I do think being overly dogmatic is the death of creativity it's, and, and it will straightjacket you and make writing harder. And only, I think everything you, you do when you're writing should be uh, about reducing friction not making it harder for yourself. Um, so yeah, that would be my thought on that. Uh, okay, so we're just about at the end here. Uh, before we wrap up, where can... I mean, I'm going to link the hell out of this, but some people might not look at those links. Where can people find you and buy your stuff? Well, you can find our paperback, and we do encourage you to grab the paperback version because it has lots of extra flash fiction, illustrations, and making of material. You can find that on Amazon. Whichever country you're in, your version of Amazon will have our book. You can also find more of our writing at our blog, which is turniplanterns.wordpress.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Angeline B. Adams or Remco Stratton. 
Yeah, the Remco van Straten was already taken. It's Oh, it was taken. There's another view of it. Yeah, it is. There is. Uh, the last I heard from him is that he was uh, selling dodgy timeshare apartments. That's not me. So not that guy. Yeah, I've got a, a URL squatter sitting on my last name, Brackenbury.com. I'm, I'm waiting for the alert that tells me one day when he lets it go instead of trying to sell it to me for $40,000 or whatever the hell. <laughs> sure, man, I'll be right on that. Um, <laughs> great. Okay, so yeah, so you've, you've heard that, folks. Uh, again, I will link all of that in the show notes and probably share it as well on uh, the show's Twitter. And uh, yeah, absolute final question. Uh, in brief, what are you working on now? Well, I'm at this very moment, I'm working on a novella about Kaila's origin story, which started out as a sword and sorcery thing, but I have just this week removed pretty much all of the sorcery from it and some of the sword play as well. No, it really, I was uh, looking, it had been on the shelf for a while to rest and, you know, to have a clear view on it. And I was reading through it and I was looking at it and thinking like, you know, I only put this uh, stuff in to, you know, take that, you know, sorcery box or this sword box. And I thought like, you know, it's not really strengthening the story. So I chucked it out. So I'm kind of redrafting that. Well, first, you know, just making lots of notes of what I would want to win it, uh, to have in it. It's more about getting the emotional arc right and whether the, the protagonists of it, there's a Kyla and another woman, uh, whether their relationship in towards each other, whether it works over a span of time. So that's more important to me than whether Kyla meets a couple of wolves mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. makes them into wolf skin pelts. You know, that, that stuff mm-hmm. is all, that's not important. For the rest, uh, we're working on some stories about, Yeah, technology and death. We had some steampunk ideas, some ideas where little shadings of science fiction veer into the horror, and we've also been getting out our enthusiasm for old Hollywood movies that way as well. Yeah, I saw you tweeting a bit. Are you working on a short story set during the making of a film from the 20s, or am I? We are indeed. But yeah. it's a slightly alt-universe thing. So in, in our story, the Laurence Olivia version of Wuthering Heights happened uh, a lot earlier than it did in real life with associated complications. You know, we were interested in doing something steampunky, but, you know, we d- did want to go be- beyond the, like, oh, let's uh, give the people top hats with goggles on. Mm-hmm. You know, you start with the basic idea uh, of, like, okay, we'll start with a world in which World War One didn't happen, but the Spanish flu happened and happened again and happened again. Mm-hmm. This is actually one of those ideas that I had 20 years ago, so it's nothing to do with Corona. It's just relevant now. Yeah. yeah. So, and then you start start to think about this like you know what consequences did it have so yeah you know and just for fun like okay they were filming Wuthering Heights but you know technology was way back so it will be silent movie Laurence Olivier will still be a prima donna but you know it's a little bit different setting it gives me another opportunity to draw in my love for old silent movies and their aesthetics as well so yeah it's that's a blast uh, whether we manage to sell it you know that's something else altogether but well, we love doing it watch this space yeah well good luck and i think i mean it's a wonderful sounding idea i'm certainly sold on it and uh now if i remember correctly there there might be plans for a red man and the other sequel 
if it is financially viable, which it has to be, so buy the book, listeners. Um, <laughs> buy some for your friends. That's what I did. I got a couple of copies for, for friends I thought would really like it. But yes, so there might be a sequel, yes? Uh, yes, we're, we're hoping so. I mean, in, in the end, it's all about, we're not fast writers and he's doing it on top of the day job. So we're having to think very carefully about, is there an audience out there air for it? You know, can we justify putting our time into focusing on this versus putting it into other projects? So that's so, yes, I mean, people people buying a book is a big factor in that. Yeah, but we, we do have the idea. So, well, and we have some drafts, like, you know, sometimes it's very crude outlines. But we, we do want to track these characters, so, you know, also what happened with them before like how did it get where they are but also like you know what happens in in five years time what happens in 20 years time we, we do want to look back on them yeah we want to meet them at various stages of their lives yeah, I, I would very much be into that. Yeah. So yeah, and of course, you know, this is something some uh, fans don't seem to like hearing. Oh, it matters how much money they make, whether or not they write a certain thing. Are they have financial concerns like everybody else alive? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that can be hard to put out there as well, right? I, I almost feel kind of like how uh, people would push to have uh, people working at companies share their income with each other to help uh, generate, you know, a push for income equality, uh, right? Between we say men and women or whatever. And in a similar vibe, I think if more writers were just really not 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 bitter but just honest about you know money is a factor in my life too believe it or not uh, it's not just the muse then maybe that would help us all i think uh, readers and writers um okay so thank you very much for speaking with, with me today again folks i'm going to link to the book like crazy website twitter uh, show notes everywhere please consider going off and buying a copy buying a few copies give some to your friends it's great i strongly strongly recommend it thank you for joining me Rumco. thank you for joining me angeline well thank well, you for having thank us thank you very much right, take care guys bye Bye-bye. And that was the first interview on So I'm Writing a Novel. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I definitely want to do more. I certainly had a whale of a time talking to Rumco and Angeline. And before I go, I just want to take a moment to thank and shout out to the patrons on the show's Patreon, whose support has helped me do all kinds of things to invest in the show and the writing of the novel, including paying for the software that allowed me to do a better quality recording of that interview and make life easier for me in the editing. Uh, the software, by the way, if you're curious, was called Iris. Anyway, so shout out thank you to Matt DeBarth, Heather Gay, Rodney Carlstrom, Peter, Tom, Keir, John Taylor, Sophie, T. Momo, Charlie J., and Christina Manouge. Thank you all. And I hope if you are not a patron, you might consider becoming one. There's all kinds of fun rewards, including a whole bonus podcast. Check it out over on patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next week. <laughs>